Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and thank you for downloading this edition of the Political Party Podcast featuring the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson, MSP. One of the most popular politicians around, one of the most likeable, very funny, um, very informal, um, uh, with, a, with a lovely and appropriate sense of humour, but an absolute, uh, resolute political brain. Uh, and having met Ruth informally before the show, one of the most interesting politicians I think there is around at the moment. And um, just to be a Conservative in Scotland and be popular is a real personal achievement on her part. Uh, she is... There are certain politicians that sparkle, and she's one of them. And um, I hope you enjoyed this interview. It was um, recorded at the Edinburgh Festival in August, so just a couple of months ago. And uh, we get straight on with it. There was no stand-up at the start of this one. So straight in with Ruth Davidson. Thank you very much, everyone. Welcome to the show. Um... I, I do these, I don't know if anyone came to the one last year I did with Jim Murphy and I did another one with uh, uh, Eddie Black, I think, Willie Black, who was a uh, Yes campaigner in the referendum. So I do a monthly show in London where I interview various different politicians every uh, month and try and just do politics in a way that's more positive and more light-hearted and more human uh, and interview people from across the ideological divide. And in the last couple of years I've interviewed Nigel Farage, Tony Blair, Tommy Robinson... Uh, a variety of people and uh, tonight a politician that I've been a fan of for a very long time um, sometimes it's really hard to stand out in an era where the brand you represent in an area in an area can be can be quite toxic and that's something the Labour Party is currently struggling with in Scotland it's remarkable then that one of the most popular politicians in Scotland is a Conservative please give a wonderful welcome to a great guest Ruth Davidson Hello, Ruth. Thank you for joining. I should say as well, leader of the Scottish Conservatives, as I'm sure uh, everyone is aware of. And this, uh, I wanted to start with something quite topical, Ruth. This mm-hmm. poll that has come out this week that has, in Scotland, puts the SNP first, the Conservatives second, and Labour third. I mean, is that something you think that will endure? Well, I think um, I'd put a bit of caveats on that. It's the subsample of a UK-wide poll, so um, there's kind of usual margin of error applies. But um, it's not the first one we've had this year. Um, I hope very much to keep it going. I think that in May you're going to see, hopefully, the Scottish Conservatives get their best ever result in a Scottish election and more than likely, unless the new leader can turn things around pretty quick, you'll see the Labour Party get its worst ever result in Scotland. Now, whether they cross over is up to the voters to decide, but I certainly think that uh, the two million people that voted no at the referendum deserve a voice in Holyrood and I want to be that voice. Are you uh, watching the Labour Party... uh leadership election with as much amusement as I presume you are? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just say, as a a Conservative in Scotland, I have some first-hand knowledge of a political party that's having a complete nervous breakdown in public. Um, It's it's funny, you would think that this kind of schadenfreude would would really kick in, but there's... I I don't know, there's there's something, I, I think maybe particularly in Scotland, because the Labour Party has been such a big institution that there is a, a sense of you know, bewilderment almost at just how bad it's gotten how quickly uh, and how difficult it looks as if it, it's going to get out of this. And I think, like I say, um, you know, on Saturday, the new Scottish Labour leader uh, is elected in three and a half weeks' time. She's about to have a new UK leader. And it looks like it could be very difficult for her going forward, given who the, the new Labour leader is, is likely to be. So, you know, I, I think... I don't want to get into to too much trouble, but um, yeah, it, it does look like the, the, the bearded wonder is about to bring his Breton cap to Prime Minister's Question Time Dispatch Box. That's, and, that's uh, Jeremy you're talking about, not yeah. Kaiser Dugdale. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, uh, 
I've, I've been found in a beret myself once in a while. <laughs> uh, let's not talk about elegance and politicians. They do say it's, uh, you know, it's uh, show business for ugly people. So I don't think, don't think any of us really cut the mustard when it comes to being glamour pusses. So. Well, yeah. I, I just because there was this Tories for Corbyn campaign and people joining Tories joining the Labour Party to, to vote for Corbyn. I mean, if from a Tory point of view, who is the candidate that you think is the easiest to defeat in an election out of the four? Um, I think. Well, I, th- I think Jeremy Corbyn is. I mean, I had presumed that it was going to be Andy Burnham uh, that, that got it and came through the, the middle, and I thought that the Prime Minister would be able to have the measure of him pretty quickly. There's, I feel a wee bit sorry for him, actually, because he, he went in for the last leadership election and he came fourth behind two Milibans and Ed Balls. And like now, none of those people are still around in, in politics at Westminster anymore. So he must have thought crack on you know the sun is shining on me god has a plan for me i'm going to lead the labor party in the uk and then suddenly from nowhere this you know this phenomenon of corbyn mania has happened that that nobody saw in the rearview mirror and it it looks as if he's going to stumble and fall and actually i think the longer the campaign's gone on the more diminished andy burnham has looked Oh, he looks absolutely dreadful. I mean, I mean, his, well, his eyes look lovely, but they... <laughs> he says he doesn't wear mascara. But you know, right, I, I reckon he's had that. Yeah, I reckon he's just had that sort of tattooed eyeliner for about five years. <laughs> but he, uh, he just looks like a desperate man because uh, he was he was the sort of left wing candidate at the start, wasn't he? Because everyone presumed Corbyn wasn't going to win, so he yeah. was the sort of left of the mainstream. And then he was complacent. And in the last week, he's gone, I'll renationalise the railways and I'll, I'll scrap tuition fees. Just please come back, will you please? Just, just listen to me. And he, he, he's, he's, the way he makes a speech, I find very difficult to watch. But then perhaps I think I'm being a bit harsh. Like, do you, of all the aspects of being a politician, what are the bits you struggle with the most? Do you enjoy set piece speeches more or do you prefer interviews like this? Or? No, I prefer, I prefer talking to people and, and having a conversation kind of develop and I, I much prefer um, for example I'd much prefer to do a sit down interview in a TV studio uh, or do a question time where you're talking to the audience um, than standing up at First Minister's questions because it's very rigid and um, it, it's slightly different rules in the Scottish Parliament to, to the House of Commons so for example I am restricted to two 90 second questions uh, and what's in the, those questions uh, can be ruled in or out of order by our speaker our presiding officer but the answer that's given from the first minister can be as long as she or prior to her he likes and it can cover any topic whatsoever and there's the the speaker has no competency over what the answer is so literally i could say nicola surgeon you know what are you doing about the health service and she could stand up and read a phone book backwards in gaelic and there's nothing anybody can do about it and still win <laughs> yeah <laughs> and a poll rating would go through the roof uh, yeah so so you know and and people always say that the opposition is much harder than government and yes in government um you have huge responsibilities you have huge departments the buck stops with you but but everybody would rather be in government than in opposition because most people in politics, in fact, almost everybody I've ever met in politics, is in it for the right reasons. Now, we might all be in different parties, but we're doing it because we might want to make the country that we serve in better. We want to make changes. We want to you know, give people more opportunities. And we all have different ideas about what's the best thing for our country. And, and I think you know, we've never found an optimum anywhere in the world because if there was an optimum politics, everybody would do it. We would all have, have kind of got together on that. So it is about testing ideas in the crucible of debate, it's seeing what works, and not just what works um, in all time, but what works for a certain time. Because some things that were really good 10 years ago don't fit the modern age because lots of things have changed. Andy Burnham. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but do you, do you, you touched on the cultural differences between yeah. Westminster and Holyrood there, and it's something that the SNP have... Uh, try to export to Westminster is this clapping uh, that happens in Holyrood. Do you take part in stuff like that up here? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in our chamber, you're allowed to clap, you're allowed to bang your desk. Um, I'm quite lazy, so I bang the desk because it only needs one hand to move rather than two. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm from a generation that just doesn't get as hung up on, on things like that. I mean, I, I think one of the things that the UK does brilliantly well is that it does ceremony. And, and I know that's quite an old-fashioned idea, but you know, you go and see something like the Edinburgh military tattoo, or you go and see something like the changing of the guards, or the trooping of the colour, or the state opening of Parliament. Do you know what? And it's a, it's a big thing, and people come from all over the world to see it because we just do it better than anybody else. And I was down um, a couple of years ago for the trooping of the colour, and the the chap that uh, is the director 
of the, the Edinburgh military tattoo uh, Brigadier David Alfrey. He's a great guy and knows everything, encyclopedic knowledge about everything. He always gets invited to the Scotland office to explain to people what's happening and he tells you which guardsmen are there and how you can tell from the number of buttons on their tunic and he, he brings a couple of pliant soldiers along to point out everything about it and talks you through all the formations and what the gun carriages do and how this was first invented during the Napoleonic War and then we did this at Waterloo and how it's all been incorporated and do you know I'd never thought of it, I didn't realise that something like the Trooping of the Colour um, was something that had developed over so many years and was something that had so much history in it. I just thought it was people marching around the square looking quite smart. And, you know, I, I always am astonished by the fact that the horses don't run away when they've got kettle drums on the back, you know. Uh, so, you know, and, and it's, it's just, when you, you learn stuff like that and you appreciate it. I did part of my degree in, in Scottish history and American history. And, you know, I, I think that you shouldn't forget where your country's come from or where you come from. Because this sort of sense of national identity, is, it feels like it's at the heart of Scottish politics now in a way that it maybe hasn't been uh, quite as forcefully before. Um, and the SNP are, are sort of riding at the wave of identity at the moment. I mean, do you, the SNP to me just seems so strong and so powerful. I mean, how long do you think their honeymoon's going to last? Um, I, I think it would be very difficult to put a date on it. Uh, the thing about, for me, the thing about the SNP is that it's not um, a political party in the same mould as other political parties. So people that join uh, the Conservative Party or the Labour Party, or actually I don't have no idea why you would join the Liberal Democrats, but you know, for the sake of argument. Um, you know, it, it's because you all have kind of similar ideas about how you want to run the economy and how you want to run public services and how you think things work better. And, and you kind of have similar values. And there, you know, people talk about Labour values and Conservative values. And the SNP has people from so many different sides of the political divide, if you like. I have SNP, MSP colleagues who are to the right of me, um, you know, and there are many SNP uh, members in, in Holyrood who are to the left of the leader of the Labour Party. So it's a really, really broad umbrella. And it's all about travelling to arrive. So it's all about having that one goal. So it's more of a, a movement than a the political party in a traditional sense. Uh, and I think if, and I hope that we, we don't, as, as you would imagine from somebody that, that fought on the no side of the campaign, if there ever was to achieve independence, I think that, that inevitably the party would have to split because what they all want to do something different with independence. They don't want the same thing. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. But then all popular nationalist parties that rise in countries around the world are all very interesting in their own ways. You seem to get on quite well with Nicola Sturgeon. Like on a personal level? I've known her for quite a long time. Um, I got elected in Glasgow and, and that's where she's been playing her trade. And I was a journalist for 10 years before I was elected. So I'd interviewed her lots of times and, and things. So, I mean, we have a professional relationship. We don't hang out having beer and pizza or anything like that. But, but I mean, I think, again, the difference between Holyrood and, and the House of Commons is, you know, it's, it's much smaller. I mean, there's 129 people elected every four or five years to Holyrood compared to 650 down south. Now that's a, that's a big difference. You know pretty much everyone. And you all serve on committees with people from different parties and you all end up doing hustings in the same you know, town hall or you end up in the same TV studio. So, so the amount of contact that you have with colleagues from other parties is much, much higher than my Conservative colleagues down south would have. And do you, do you like Nicola Sturge? I mean, you, it just seems... <laughs> <laughs> But I just, I really want to like Nicola Sturgeon, and there's parts for that I really admire. Um, I like her more than Alex Salmond. <laughs> <laughs> What's he like to deal with, Salmond? Um, oh, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, the thing that I like about Nicola is that um, she's straight to deal with, because you... She will absolutely tell you out of the blocks because with all politics, there's always some things that you have to talk about away from the cut and thrust, away from the microphones and the cameras and all the rest of it. So there's things that have to be worked out and sorted out and they're usually done in quite a mature fashion. And the thing that I like about her is she will come right out of the blocks and tell you, yes, let's do that. No, we can't do that. And if she says, yes, let's do that, then it'll get done. And that level of sort of playing with a straight bat hasn't always been there, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, I mean, how do you find... Because the sort of introduction I gave you, 
the Labour Party has a, a significant identity crisis now, specifically in Scotland, mm. where it's almost a sort of tainted brand. How do you find being a Conservative in Scotland? Because the, the, uh, since the '97 election, which was a formative experience for me, it's almost <laughs> been—it's almost been that the, 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 almost <coughs> the Tory Party doesn't exist in Scotland, and yet here you are, one of the most popular politicians around, and, and you're a Tory here. Like, what, what's your experience of? Leading the Conservative Well, I think it, being a Conservative in Scotland is getting easier and easier. Um, I have to say the 97 election was quite a formative experience for me as well. Um, I was a student at university in Edinburgh um, in 1997, and it was my first election. I was 18, so I was just coming to the end of my first year. And um, nobody had a, a telly back then. You didn't have your own telly. So I really wanted to watch it through the night, and my mates from uni had said one of the student unions um, has got a late licence, you can drink right through till six in the morning. I thought, okay, well, I quite like the sound of this. <laughs> and they're putting the election on so we can watch it. It was great. So it was actually the cabaret bar in, in the Pleasance because this, during the rest of the year, this is part of the student union uh, complex that, that the Edinburgh University has. And one of my mates who was also a Tory uh, was going to come along and then sort of five or six of the others who were all sort of Labour SNP uh, were going to go along. And we got there and what they hadn't told me was the reason that there was this late licence was because the entire building had been hired by the University Labour Club. <laughs> and my mate, who was the other Tory, who actually stood for the Conservatives in 2010 as a candidate, um, he decided that he did, was, wasn't going to turn up when he heard this, but nobody had told me. So I was literally the only Conservative in a room of 250 drunk students watching every single Tory seat in Scotland fall through the night. And um, I've been waiting a really long time for a majority conservative government. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think as a character-building exercise, I, you know, I, I did quite well to get through that. How did you not just end up getting drunk and punching someone? I will take the second and the fifth as to what happened on that night. I, I, I do not want to incriminate myself or others. So, um, oh, I don't think I could handle it. I mean, even as a... It was a fairly depressing evening, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. But... Was a, was a part of you not when you when you started to get into politics, which was not really that long ago, really? Um, we, did you not think, well, Scotland's a lost cause for the Tories. I'm gonna I'm gonna look to Westminster and maybe get a seat in England or something like that. Well, no, because Scotland's my home. You know, and it's it's always been my home. And you know, I've been very lucky in my life in that I've got to travel to lots of interesting and different places. But you know, I I know where I'm from, and and it's here. And I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, be the only Scot in the village for some satellite town outside of Birmingham, thanks very much. You know, I, you know, I, I, as I'm sure it's a very nice satellite town, but, but you know, that, that doesn't interest me. Oh, it's um, not. I've, I've been to the West Midlands. <laughs> oh, it's on Stoke-on-Trent for 18 months. It was dreadful. You, you, you're right to stay up here. Um, do you think the, the, the Conservatives will get a breakthrough in Scotland yeah. eventually? And, but I not think they'll get a breakthrough in, in me. But not just in Holyrood, but in Westminster? Yeah. I do. We, um, I don't want to get too technical, but um, Lord Ashdown a couple of years ago did a really, really big piece of work. Now, most surveys that you see in the newspaper, to get in the newspaper, you've got to have done a survey of about 1,001 people to be statistically significant. Uh, he did a survey of 30,000 people. Oh, Ashcroft. Yeah, Ashcroft. Yeah. A massive piece of work over six months, talking to people, focus grouping them, all of the rest of them. And he found that about a third of people in Scotland um, would consider voting for Conservative policies, politics, policies, and would consider voting for the Conservative Party. But the biggest single thing that stopped people from doing it was the idea it was a wasted vote because we never got any MPs. That was the biggest thing. So what we have to do, and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if more and more people leave because they think you can't win, then you've got less and less chance of winning. Mm. So you know the job that I've got to do is to convince people that yes we are worth voting for and if that means putting on seats at a Scottish election to be able to point to the fact that we've got and I believe we will get our best ever result next year that we are you know the go-to people when it comes to giving a really positive vision of what Scotland can be within the United Kingdom how we can work with our colleagues in England Wales and Northern Ireland rather than try and create false grievance with them if we can talk about an entrepreneurial country that Scotland always used to be supporting our business telling our young people that are coming up just now that no matter what they want to to be in life, they can stay in Scotland to do it because there will be a job here, there for them in whatever industry they want to go in, then I think we can absolutely do it. Because there's, there's a prevailing view at the moment, and I don't think it's necessarily true, which is, well, Scotland's left wing and England's right wing, and therefore uh, Labour needs to be left wing in Scotland and, and right wing in England, the Tories can never win in Scotland, uh, etc. Um, 
is that firstly a lazy assumption, as I sort of presume it is, and is there not a problem fundamentally just with the Tory brand in Scotland, is that people sort of culturally don't want to identify as Conservatives? Well, I think um, that's two very different questions. If we take the first one first, um, no, I don't think that there's this massive Scottish differentialism uh, and, and that Scotland and people in Scotland are hugely different from people anywhere else. You know, the idea that somebody in Glasgow is different from somebody in Newcastle or Belfast or Cardiff, I just I just don't think it's true. And it's, it's not even just my own subjective belief in that. There's something that happens every year called the Scottish Social Attitude Survey. It's replicated down south in the UK Social Attitude Survey. And it talks of so how many people believe in um, equal marriage, how many people believe in uh, a benefits cap, how many people believe in X, Y, Z. Um, and it, it looks at people's values and how that relates to policies that, that happen both sides of the border. And it's pretty close. I mean, we're talking margin of error stuff on almost every single topic. Mm. This, this idea that somehow we're a race apart just isn't true. But how do you convince people to vote Conservative then? Because it does it because the second part of the question is the, the sort of the brand, mm. and there've, there've been discussions within the Scottish Conservatives yeah. until quite recently about effectively disbanding the Tory Party up here and calling it something else. Yeah, I mean, I the leadership election that I fought, one of the the, the deputy leader at the time, his his platform was that we would change the name, have a break from uh, the UK party. It would be kind of like the German CDU CSU um, type type affair. Um, I thought that you know people can smell inauthenticity a mile away. I was going to use a different word there, but inauthenticity. <laughs> uh, it, it was something more of a noun that I was going to use. But uh, <laughs> you know, and if it's the same people on the same platform with the same policies, um, fighting in the same area, but just calling themselves something different and saying we're actually not part of this, but we will support them in government. I mean, it, it just it smacked to me of of, of just not being true and, and I think the example I used at the time and that still holds true is is um, the Scottish Tories at that time being a bit like Skoda in that Skoda was rubbish for years like really rubbish for years and um, they got taken over by uh, VW and VW had a choice they could either sort of change the name and try and market Skoda as something else or they could change the car and make the car better and um, I've gone for the VW option. Like I want to make the car better. I want to make the Scottish Conservative Party better. And that means having a huge policy overhaul. That means getting new people into place. That means making sure that we've got more robust candidates, that we open our tent wider, that we ask people to come and join us, that we take ideas from people right across the political spectrum, right across all of the sort of um, areas of, of life and, and people who are experts in business and in academia and in research and all of these other things because I don't have all the answers and my MSP group don't have all the answers so I have to make sure that we've got the answers that people out there need and I don't care where that comes from. So all we need is Volkswagen to take over the Scottish Conservatives. <laughs> well, do you know, if they were going to, I would take a courtesy car. Yeah, I, I, would, I would selflessly take a nice wee Golf TDI hatchback. Thanks, thanks chaps. Yeah. Would, you have, would you have branding up the side? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I, um, during the referendum campaign, I, uh, I, I pimped my Astro, because that's what I drive. Uh, and I had oh, the, the, the truck was crucial there, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I had the, the kind of no thanks uh, um, flags out of the windows and the the, uh, the sort of magnets on the side and on the bonnet, which came off halfway down the ME, but we will not tell anyone. Uh, so yeah, so no, it was good, good fun, all good fun. Because the, the referendum campaign, I was in Glasgow on referendum day, and it was usually inspiring to see people energised by democracy on whatever side. Although visibly, it was predominantly yes um, in terms of the visibility war, um, but also there were, there were tensions unearthed during the referendum campaign and, and, and there are existing politics anyway I mean do you get how do you deal with problems on the doorstep and people giving you grief yeah well I mean I started out my first election was a, a by-election in 2009 um, it was I don't know if, if people remember the Speaker of the House of Commons Michael Martin uh, stood down and installed all of the expensive oh, yeah, scandal yeah. Uh, and it was the last by-election before the 2010 general election and Gordon Brown was terrified he was going to lose to the SNP so he refused to move the writ, he refused to actually give people a date for when the election was going to happen so by-elections are usually about 6 to 12 weeks long this one lasted for 5.5 months there was 13 candidates 
three of which had been on either Big Brother or Celebrity Big Brother. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not joking. It was an absolute circus. It was at the point where BNP were at their peak and Nick Griffin was on Question Time and they had a candidate. Tommy Sheridan was in there. George Galloway was in there. Uh, John Smeaton, Smeeto, that took on the uh, the bomber the at, at uh, yeah. the airport was in there. Like, it was an absolute circus. It was brilliant. And, uh, <laughs> it was in a bit of Glasgow. It, it, the constituency is called Glasgow Northeast, but for anyone in the audience who knows Glasgow, it was in uh, a part of Glasgow um, that included... Springburn, Barmulloch, St Rolochs, uh, Milton, you know, quite, what had been quite socially depressed areas, um, areas that had had big heavy industry in them um, and uh, had high unemployment. It had been a, a labour seat for over 70 years, unbroken. Uh, so I was going around doors that they hadn't seen the Conservative for, for years. And, um, you know, I was expecting quite a lot of, like, slamming in face. And actually the... <laughs> This is probably more disheartening. The the most common uh, sort of response I had was, you know, "Hello, I'm here to talk about the by-election. I'm your local Conservative candidate. Candidate for who? <laughs> the Conservatives. <laughs> oh, hen. There's <laughs> 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 a real kind of oh, hen about it. So you know, that was my first election, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Although I did have, you know, there were some people that had some quite stored up grievances. Um, <laughs> so I did have one person asking me about the sinking of the Bill Grant, who I did have to explain that I was two at the time and I didn't push the, the button myself. Uh, there was somebody that wanted to speak to me about, um, in St Rolex, there was a lot of, and Cowlears, there was a lot of rail yards. And at one point they'd exported uh, a quarter of all locomotives around the world. So there are you know, trains that were running in Australia and New Zealand and Canada that were built in, in this part of Glasgow and had been exported over there. And um, and they shot in the 1960s. And I had a lot of people telling me that, you know, that, well, a couple of people telling me that Thatcher had shot the rail yards. And I, I did have to slightly point out that they shot in the 1960s um, because they were making steam locomotives and the world had moved to diesel. And I'm pretty sure that at that time, Margaret Thatcher had been making the secret ingredient to Mr. Whippy ice cream <laughs> as an industrial chemist and wasn't you know, either prime minister or labor uh, secretary. But um, that didn't seem to, facts did not get in the way of the fact that Thatcher shot these rail yards that had closed a decade and a half before. But anyway, so. You, you seem to handle politics and the rough and tumble of it with, uh, with humour and with with a great deal of style, do you does it, does criticism ever get to you? Do you get much? So many politicians get abused on Twitter now. I mean, do you get much? Yeah, stuff? I mean, I, I get loads of stuff, <laughs> uh, but um, but then everybody does, and and you know, you put your head above the parapet. I I my rule of thumb is I don't think anyone should say anything on Twitter that they wouldn't say in a pub to a drunk man that's a foot and a half taller than them. You know, that's you know that's the level of discourse that I would like mm. to see. But but it does happen and. You know, I don't call out anything that is anti-Tory or anti-me or you're fat, ugly, useless, any of that sort of stuff. But I do call out the stuff that's uh, really homophobic because I have a lot of, of young gay people that follow me on Twitter. And, you know, it, it kind of matters that they see somebody saying, that's not okay, you don't get to say that, that's not acceptable. Um, so that they feel confident enough that they can say that too. So that's that's the only stuff that I call out. Have you ever met anyone that's given you abuse on Twitter? I'm sure I have. I'm sure they but not given, knowingly. I'm sure they shouted at me in the street as well. But um, no, I, um, I'm trying to think. No, I did. I did have somebody phone me to apologise. Really? Yeah. Um, they were an SNP member and I had the call from SNP mm. hierarchy to phone me to apologise. I, I didn't accept so. their apology, but I mean, it, it was not often that Salmon apologises. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm still waiting for that phone call. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, it had been a particularly ugly set of comments advocating corrective rape and stuff like that. I mean, it was it was really pretty bad. So I can understand why he felt the need to apologise in the cold, hard light of day. And, and, you know, and it's all done now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You, as far as a broad depth of a broad depth, a, a, a breadth of experience that mm. people would want for their politicians, you've done all sorts of sort of weird and wonderful things, <laughs> and you're still very young for a politician. Oh, thank you. But it's true, isn't it? You know, we, there's a genuine problem, I think, with career politicians. Significantly older than Matt, actually. We, we discussed this the other night, so... Yeah. I know, it, you didn't I, get to vote in the 1997 election, I did didn't, you, Matt? I don't know. No. Uh, I think you're four years older than me, but I look about 14 years older than you. Ah, oh, you gallant gentleman, you. Keep going. Uh, well, I, I just had a very hard life. <laughs> oh, that's it. Calluses on the ass. <laughs> <Okay. Not before laughs> or eight to a bed in a shoebox, you know, me liked it. Yeah, yeah, all of that. I get a lot of abuse on Twitter, um, <laughs> <laughs> I do as well. Well, I like the ones. I, I don't know if you ever laugh at them, but there's there's some where I like it when people abuse me politically for stuff that isn't about politics. So Liverpool fans are very easy to wind up on Twitter when there's a football match on and just say, "Oh, well, typical Liverpool, always moaning or whatever." I remember one guy tweeting me during a, a Forest game, just saying, oh, "What would you know about football, you fat Blairite prick?" <laughs> Oh, well, fair enough. I've retweeted him and now we've uh, been friends for years. Um, but there is, there's a, part of the reason why I think where Jeremy Corbyn is cutting through is that there seems to be a reaction against this professional political class. Mm. And you're an antidote to that as well. And you've done... I mean, you, you've been to Kosovo. Mm-hmm. As a, was that as a journalist? Yeah, um, I was a journalist for about ten years before I got elected. And... Um, one of the first jobs that I had, actually, when I was really very young, was, was going out there to um, see what the Black Watch, one of our sort of Scottish regiments, were doing. And it was in 2001, um, so it was still considered a theatre of war, although the actual war fighting had kind of finished. But it was watching the, the peacekeeping that they do and uh, the sort of nation building that they do. And it's the strangest thing when you see uh, what had been a, a, you know, a developed westernisation, exactly the same as the UK, um, completely reduced to nothing working. So, you know, there was no bin men for the streets. There was no uh, civilian jails. The only people that were... That was Thatcher's up. fault, though, wasn't it? She closed the... <laughs> she, she closed the... Yeah, she closed the pits. So she closed the, uh, the dumps. Uh, you know, um, you could go to an internet cafe and they would have flat-screen monitors when we all still had the big cathode ray things, but um, you couldn't get milk for your coffee. There was... You know, the school children had to be have an armed guard to walk them to class in the morning because of snipers and stuff like that. I mean, it was it was really pretty, pretty eye-opening. And I've kept an interest in the Balkans down the years. And earlier this year, in in February, I was over in in Bosnia uh, to see um, and speak to mothers who were affected by the Srebrenica massacre. And I sit on a, a charity board um, in in this country that I helped set up to try and remember Srebrenica and, and the genocide that had happened there. So it's it's something I, I've kind of. Um, been interested in for a long time. But you, you got to know the soldiers quite well as well. <laughs> yeah, I did a really bad thing. Uh, I didn't mean to. It wasn't my fault. Um, yeah, I don't know what people think I was insinuating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to realise it sounded a lot worse. <laughs> right. You might have heard a sharp intake of breath. My mum's in, and I'm not sure if she knows where this is going. So, <laughs> Mum, it's not what you think. Um, no, I'm, I was over there as, as part of a, a scheme that took journalists out to see what, what um, the troops were doing. And I was there with three male journalists. And the Black Watch is an infantry regiment, so there's no women in it. It's 550 men. So I was literally the only woman uh, out of 550 men. And we, we kind of got there and uh, the, we were put in the barracks and the three guys were shoved in this sort of long, low kind of bunk room with ten other bunks. And I was taken up, it was really interesting, I was taken up the staircase that had shrapnel marks all up the walls and like chunks taken out of it from mortars and stuff and put in this uh, storeroom on a, on a kind of camp bed where you could see outside through the bullet holes. And I thought it was brilliant. I was like, I am Kate Adey, I'm 22, this is amazing. Uh, and uh, we were given a kind of tour of the grounds and, and taken outside to these porta cabins and like, this is your shower block, this is your ablution block, this is your toilet block. And uh, taken away to see you know a massacre site and then taken away to see an orphanage being built and all this sort of stuff. And the next morning I got up and was really quite soiled. There was a, it was quite, it's quite dirty over there. It's coal power stations, lots of ash in the air and stuff. And um, I thought, right, I really need a shower. But 
I thought, well, I'll be grown up about this. K.A.D. would never get phased. Um, nothing I've not seen before, nothing they've not seen before. Sorry, Mum. Um, but I don't want them to think that I'm perving on them. So I know what I'll do. I'll take my contact lenses out so I can't really see. I don't know why that made sense in my head, but like, it kind of made sense. And uh, So anyway, so I, I have my towel wrapped around me and I go outside to the, the, the sort of porter cabin that's the shower block and I, I go inside and it's open stalls, there's no doors and there's just a bench down the other side. I thought, well, I don't want to walk past any naked men, so I'll just jump in the first one. Not coming to the logical conclusion that that meant that every other person had to go past me. Um, so I had the fastest shower of my life. No kind of shaving my legs in there, let me tell you. And, uh, you know, toweled off, ran in, got changed, got ready for the, the day's uh, sort of events. And then we kind of got back and, and later that night we were all having dinner in the mess hall. And it's, it's still kind of structured and, and hierarchical because all the officers sit at one table and all the other ranks sit at another. And I was sitting next to the sort of deputy commanding officer um, and chatting away to him. And I saw like out of the corner of my eye, I saw this kind of like kerfuffle at the, the rank, other ranks table. And like this young lad who was clearly the runt of the litter was like being prodded by his mates. And he, he sort of, he kind of hoved into view like a, a man going to the gallows, dragging his feet. <laughs> and he just sort of tapped me on the shoulder and went, excuse me, ma'am, see tomorrow? Would you mind awfully using the women's showers? <laughs> Nobody had told me. Nobody had told me there was another shower block around the corner. And, uh, and a, few years, a few years later, I actually joined the Territorial Army and uh, I was garrulously retelling the story in the mess to my new sort of comrades in arms. And my colour sergeant, that was uh, one of the trainers of our platoon, was like, was that you? <laughs> I was like, oh, my big mouth gets me into trouble again. So, so yeah, so that was me getting to know an entire regiment of soldiers quite well. Uh, you, you, but you seem to get into a lot of scrapes as well. Like, you quite... Uh, is it right? I don't know what... Sort of... You're like a sort of action man type character, aren't you? You sort of get involved in a lot of... I think it's fair to say I have a slightly cavalier attitude to personal safety, <laughs> but then I am the Tory party leader in Scotland, so I think one kind of follows the other. Um, no, I have broken probably more bones than any elected politician in the UK, possibly. In your body or in other people's? Uh, no, in my... Uh, no, no, I've broken a couple of bones in my foot, and my leg and my pelvis, I've broken my back in three places, I cracked a couple of ribs, and got a hairline fracture on my collarbone. So How did you break your back? That was in the Territorial Army too. <laughs> so what? I... Um, jumped head first on command through an open window frame and landed badly and ended up in hospital and it was really sore really really sore uh, you, I, I just I've never known anyone break so many bones yeah my mum blames it on Diet Coke because <laughs> you, you're always trying to get hold of it <laughs> no no I'm completely addicted to Diet Coke and she says it kills your bone density or something is that right yes is that right <laughs> <laughs> The whole family's in. I wasn't worried about SNP supporters. I was just really worried about being heckled by my mum and dad. So, yeah. so what made you want to join the TA? Would you, would you actually, if it came to it, want to see armed combat? Do you think there's part of you that would actually like to properly serve any, in war? I don't think anybody wants to, but... Um, oh, I've got a few mates to do. Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, if I'd been called, I would have served, and I would have served wow. abroad. And what, what's interesting is actually... I've only ever been on one protest march in my whole life, and that was the anti-Iraq war march in Glasgow, and I'd only just started at the BBC, and you're not allowed to be political at the BBC, and you know, I was really worried because I thought I could get sacked from this job, and I'd always wanted to work for the BBC, but I just felt so strongly about it that I felt that I had to do it. And, um, but I was also in the process of, of, because of what I'd seen in Kosovo and the good work that I'd seen over there, was in the process of, of joining the TA, and I, I sort of got my papers and was sworn into the TA about a month later, and it's one of those things that I considered at the time, but even though I didn't agree with why we went to war, um, if I had been called to serve, I would have gone because I believe in service. And that's, again, a really old-fashioned notion, but I've always, my whole life, I've always believed in service. And whether that's in the Territorial Army or whether, um, you know, when I was much younger, I used to um, teach Sunday school. I've volunteered for a, a radio station for the blind and partially sighted that's operated by the RNIB. Um, I've always kind of been involved in, in doing things or, or now setting up this, helping uh, set up this this charity for remembering Srebrenica and, and learning the lessons in Scotland. It's something I've always believed in. But joining the TA, I mean, it, it, there's a real danger, isn't there? You think, it, it's been a lovely hobby. I've, I've gone on zip wires all weekend and crawled under <laughs> netting and now I've got to go to bloody Baghdad. You, is there not a fear that you'd get caught up? I'd, I'd be shit scared of going to war. 
Well, I mean, I, I don't... I mean, you, you're trained for it. I mean, that sounds yeah. the kind of macho thing to say, and I don't mean it to be, but I mean... Shooting guns? Yeah. What was that like? Um, <laughs> it's it's all right. I mean, some of them are, are more enjoyable to shoot than others. I mean, you, you, you shoot targets with live ammunition and you shoot... Um, and, and any kind of live exercise that you do, you, you have what's called a blank firing attachment. So the gun goes bang and yeah. still suit comes out of it, but nothing comes out the end of it. Yeah. Um, and mostly it's, it's you hate the gun that's the hardest to clean because you've got to clean the damn thing once you've shot thousands of rounds through it. And they're really, really dirty and it's really, really horrible stuff you use to clean it. So I didn't like that part of it. But um, I, I mean, y- you believe in what you're doing and, and you fight for yourself and you fight for your comrades and you fight for your unit and you fight for the regiment and you fight for the country and you fight for the, the queen and you fight for God, you know, and, and you, you have a belief in what you're doing and I don't think that you would belong there if you didn't have a belief in what you were doing. It sounds like great fun as well though, doesn't it? Like all the, did you join for the fun element though? That must have been a part of it. Well, well I mean, I, I really enjoyed it and there's something, you know, really nice of if it's a, a sunny day, you know, yomping around the fields, um, you know, grabbing a, a quick kind of drink of water out of the canteen, sun's beating down. Just that idea of having that physical exertion as well as, I'd always had mental exertions in my work and I've always been quite a sporty person. You wouldn't think it from this athlete's body, but I've always <laughs> been kind of sporty and stuff. And, and, and it also, I mean, it's, it's, they teach you so much. I mean, I cannot, anybody that's interested, I cannot advocate it highly enough in terms of what you learn. And I couldn't have, actually, I probably couldn't have been leader of the Scottish Conservative Party if I hadn't been the TA because I couldn't have, taken on a leadership role three months into a new job and a new sort of discipline if I hadn't had the leadership training that the British Army had given me and it's some of the best leadership training in the world on how to make decisions, how to see things clearly, how to chart a course, how to change course if obstacles are put in your way, how to bring people with you, how to encourage people, how to know when somebody needs an arm around the shoulder or a kick up the arse, you know, like it really teaches you all of these things. And, um, and it teaches you to think very, very clearly about, you know, making, seeing the field in front of you, making a decision, deciding on the, acting, the action, and then going and doing it and backing yourself up and knowing that whatever decision you made, you made with the most and the best um, intelligence that you had, uh, with the best information that you had available, and that you'd back yourself to make that decision again. Does that mean it technically Britain went also, to war? Like, oh. the beer is really cheap in the mess. And that's quite good too. That's why people become MPs, isn't it? Um, it's, yeah, we need some of that subsidy in Hollywood. We don't get that, you know. But would you be, let's say Britain goes to war with Russia, could you potentially get called up? No, because they broke me, they didn't want me anymore because of the broken back. I went back in and then I fell off the Pentlands on a night exercise and had my commanding officer come up to me and inform me that I was an insurance risk. So they couldn't afford to have me anymore. I was like, well, I didn't sue you the first time, so I'm not likely to now. But, but yeah, so I ended up being medical out. But that hasn't stopped you getting in scrapes, has it? Like, you, you still get involved in... Like, some people would say dangerous physical feats. Well, I... Canvassed in Dundee, if that's what you're talking about. <laughs> but the, I heard that someone has built um, a human catapult. Yeah, I'm a bit scared of this one. I, I'm, I'm generally quite kind of gallus, but um, I was down in Dumfries and Galloway um, seeing this great sort of family farm that's um, has diversified. So it's got like a, um, it's run by three brothers, and my, my candidate down there wanted me to meet them as a, a really good rural business. It's got caravan park and part of it, and the brothers, one brother's running that, one brother's running the farm part. The other brother has set up a kind of outdoors event, and it's uh, it's called the Lagan. Go if you can, it's really good. Um, and they've got the longest zip wire in Europe that's over a kilometre long, and it starts at the top of the hill. Wow. And then it's in the kind of stewartry bit of Dumfries and Galloway, and you can actually see like the Isle of Man from it and stuff like that. So they sent me down in snow in a thermal kind of body stocking thing, <laughs> and I was terrified, I was absolutely terrified. Uh, I was doing that kind of politician smile through the tail, <laughs> all the way down because they send the local paper out and stuff. And, and I got to the bottom, I was chatting to the guys, and it was, you know, it was a really good setup they've got there. And they were like, "Yeah, we've got a new attraction coming next year, but you can't tell anyone." I was like, "All right, okay, what is it?" I was like, "We're we're going to try and set up a human catapult." And I was like, well, tell you what, if you get that set up, give me a call and I'll come and I'll do it and I'll get you some, you know, I'll try and support you and I'll, I'll get you some coverage for it. 
and thinking that you know they'd never get planning. <laughs> yeah, they've got planning built to, and they're after me to come down, and now the sun's on my back to try and do it. So I, I will at some point, probably at the start of next year, go down and have a human catapult. The thing is, I'm sure people can build something that can catapult a human being, but it's about where you end up, isn't it? Like, yeah, I, they well, need to build a human net. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they've, they've got the planning for the catapult. I'm not sure if they've got the planning for the landing. And, and as we know, I'm not that good at landing. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I really want to come to that, if that's possible. We should all try and go to that. Should we? Yeah, yeah. We'll all have a big reunion. I'm, I'm keen to allow the audience <laughs> to ask questions if anyone has anything they'd like to ask through. Two or three people like to put their hand up. Yes, the gentleman at the front. And I will repeat it. I know it's tedious, but for the podcast, I'll repeat it so the microphone has it. Um, your only MP, David Mundell, your only MP opened a food bank in Dumfries. What's your opinion of that? Well, the people that were, were running the food bank had asked him as the local MP to come and give them support, and I think that, you know, I, I think it would have been wrong of him to, re- to refuse. Um, I think it was also wrong of the local SNP MSP to start running around telling the press and whipping up things about it. But, um, you know, I, I don't want to see a country where we have a prevalence of, of food banks, and I, I don't think anybody else does either. And you look at this sort of phenomenon of, of them starting, I mean, there's over a thousand in Germany feeding over a million people. There's yeah. a huge increase in France and Norway of all places as well. So it's, it's, it's really happening all around the world. And it's not, you know, just because of, of anything that's happening in Scotland or the UK that means that it's exploding in, in Germany. And, and there's, nobody's really quite understood the end of it. I mean, for me, the most basic thing of increasing people's life chances and increasing uh, their quality of life is making sure that there's somebody in the house that has a job. Because, I mean, like I say, I've, I've spent much of the last 12 years living in Glasgow and there are families there that are in second, third generation of nobody having a job. And one of the best things I think that this government has done is got so many people back to work and has spent so much money. And the thing that really frustrates me about my colleagues down south is um, actually they're really, really terrible at telling the good news stories. I mean, so you hear lots of stuff and debate lots of things about things like a benefit cap and, and all the rest of it. But actually you don't hear the amount of money that's been spent on the work programme, which is the biggest welfare-to-work programme ever in the history of our country and is really working. And it's not just working for people that lost their job last week. It's working for people that have been out of work for five years, ten years, never had a job, and is putting a huge amount of resource to help these people and keep them in long-term employment. And, you know, for a kid in a household where neither of their parents work and maybe their grandparents have never worked either... You know, that impacts their whole life because they never see somebody getting up at the same time every day. They never see somebody making sure that they're out to school at the same time every day. And it just, it's this cycle and, and it's trying to break that cycle. And I, I sometimes could, you know, rattle my colleagues down south for not being better at telling that side of the story. So why aren't they good at it then? Do they just not have the instincts for that sort of thing? Is it your journalistic background, do you think, that gives you a better angle on a story like that? Or well, I mean, I think... Bad political management on their part? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to work harder to get news good news stories into newspapers and televisions. I think bad news stories sell easier. Um, I think it's always easy to find somebody in opposition that wants to go in hard with quotes to tell you you're doing something wrong on a bad news story. So you get that conflict that newspapers like. I mean, I'm not naive. Like I say, I was a, a journalist for 10 years. But I, I think that nobody else is going to do it. So so we have to do it. We ha- And we have to explain not just what the policies are, but how they work and what they're for. And I think particularly possibly for the Conservatives, where traditionally in this country people think that um, the Conservatives are maybe a, a, a party of the head, whereas the Labour Party is maybe a party of the heart. We have to explain our, our motivations better as well. What part of the body would the SNP be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're tempting me. See if this is gin and tonic and not water. Oh, the answer you could get. No, but I mean, and, and genuinely, I, I mean, I think those characterisations are, are wrong and you would expect me to say that. But, but genuinely, most people in politics go into it for the right reasons because they want to make a difference to people's lives, they want to make a positive difference to people's lives. It does seem an odd image, sort of an MP opening a food bank there, doesn't it? There's sort of... I doubt there was a ribbon cut. Yeah, but, but, but you see Danny Alexander did it up in Inverness and Alex Salmon did it up in his patch and, it, you know... Every food bank that this particular charity had opened had always asked their local member to go along. So there had maybe been, I don't, I don't know how many, they'd opened six or something, seven in, in Scotland. Um, each one had always had the local representative there. So I think it would have been utterly wrong for him to say, no, I'm not coming. Fair enough. Any other questions from the audience? Um, 
Hold on a second. I'm going to throw. Are there any ladies that would like to ask a question? Because we've got a lot of men in the air. Yes, lady over there. When independence is achieved, and you believe it will be, how do you feel the Tories will fare? Well, I'll tell you what. Ask me that again if it ever happens. Because I I genuinely believe that... I I don't believe it's inevitable. I don't believe that there is something that says it has to happen. I think that... um, you know, we chose to come together for a reason. I, I have really struggled in the last couple of years with the way in which the dynamic of the campaign was set up and it, it kind of troubled me that a big part of what I saw of the, the yes argument was this idea that the UK was something alien or external to Scotland that was acting upon Scotland. It was this idea of, of something other, whereas actually the UK is something that's ours and we built it and Scots have punched above their weight within the UK since you know the Union of the Crowns in 1603, since the Union of the Parliaments in 1707, and at every other staging post down the way, you know we we own it. We have ownership of it. It is ours, and it wouldn't exist without us. And um, and I don't think that it is necessarily inevitable that that it would happen. And I think that the argument that if Scotland was already independent, or or if um, all of the countries were independent, they wouldn't have come together to form some sort of union on these islands. I, I think, you know, if the union wasn't there, we would have had to invent it. So, um, you know, I think that, yes, perhaps uh, a right of centre party, perhaps called the Conservative Party in another universe where there was a, a, an independent Scotland might do quite well. But that's not a campaign I'm interested in being a part of because I believe very much in the United Kingdom that Scots have built and that is ours. Okay, any from this side of the room? Yes, the gentleman there. As all powers have devolved from Westminster to Scotland, there will be fewer uh, things to discuss in Westminster for Scottish MPs. So should the constituencies be merged in Scotland so there's fewer Scottish MPs? Should the constituencies in Scotland be merged so there are fewer Scottish MPs? Well, I mean, I think we've, even in my lifetime, we've seen the number of constituencies come down and down and down. The House of Commons is one of the largest um, primary um, uh, sort of uh, seats of, go- of government uh, in the world um, and I, I I mean I think we might see, I, I know uh, there was plans before the election to cut the number of, of UK seats from 650 to 600, if that happens that'll take three or four out of Scotland already but I mean I think there is a point at which you kind of have to stop because if you're going to have a system that's based on geographical constituencies where you only have one member of parliament for you in that constituency it has to be geography that that person can service that that person can serve and so for example in in the case of of uh, david mundell in, in dumfries and galloway um his seat is the size of wallonia which is a third of belgium you know it's an enormous seat it takes in something like four local authority districts uh the one that's that's up that involves Ross and Skye up north, that's the size of Northern Ireland. You know, that's a huge, huge geographical constituency. And, and somebody on Skye might not feel that much of an affinity with somebody in Dingwall. And, and they, on, they only have one representative between them. So, I mean, yes, there's absolutely a, a question mark over, you know, do you want multi-member um, seats of government? Do you want a different electoral system? But if you're using first-past-the-post, I think there is a point, particularly with the geography of Scotland, at which you really can't take it down much further. Okay, any questions towards the back of the room? Yes, there's uh, an arm waving over there. Uh, the Prime Minister has said that he will stand down against this term. How do you anyone else that you should Great question. <laughs> <laughs> David Cameron won't stand at the end of this uh, Parliament. Um, have you been approached by any of the potential leaders and would you consider standing yourself? No, I haven't been approached by anybody that's my colleague, and even if I had, I wouldn't tell you or the podcast. But, but no, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes politics can be brutal. But the guy's got another four or five years. We're not standing with a knife right now. You know what I mean? Um, and and, and <laughs> I think Boris is as well. <laughs> but um, during the election campaign, quite interestingly, uh, David Cameron was on Women's Hour and was asked who a potential future successor would be. And he, he mentioned my name and there was a big flurry in Scotland about it. And um, nobody quite picked up on the fact that 
he said the only person that wasn't likely to be in the House of Commons at the time that he stands down and therefore could not be a candidate to succeed him. So it meant that he wasn't taking the side of anybody else because he's quite a smart guy, the Prime Minister. You know, he, he kind of gets things. He's very quick on his feet. And I was, uh, you know, the first I heard about it was on Twitter and I was like, well, that's very flattering, but I know exactly why you've said it. And you've totally got round the question and nobody's <laughs> noticed. You sly old fox you. So, yeah. so. Do you get on well with uh, the Prime Minister? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, you know, we're, I, I like him. I think he's smart and, and uh, he cares and he gets things and I think that's what you want in a Prime Minister. Um, we have a very good working relationship, but it's it's a working relationship. Like, I, I don't want to be his best pal. I don't want to, like, hang out with him on a Saturday night. I don't even know what he does on a Saturday night. You know, we, we've got... Leaves his kids in do. the pub, I think. <laughs> I think that was a Sunday afternoon, actually. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I genuinely rate him and I genuinely like him. But, um, like I say, I'm not going to go and see Aston Villa or West Ham, whichever is, uh, with them on the weekend, you know. <laughs> OK, one last question. I'll tell you one thing. That I, I probably shouldn't say this, actually, but I'll say it anyway. I, I was kicking myself. I got an invitation um, to go to Checkers, which is very nice. Oh, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. very nice. Um, which I couldn't go to because I was going on holiday with my partner and she would have killed me if I had to give up the holiday. And... To be honest, I wasn't that fussed about going to Checkers for dinner with the Prime Minister, which would be very nice. I just wanted to nosy around the house. Is that normal? I think that's kind of normal, isn't it? I just wanted to have a wee look around the house. So maybe one, I'll maybe get invited back. Who knows? I, I've been to Checkers. Have you? Yeah, I went... Uh, Is it I, worth having a wee nosy around the house? Um, it's worth having a nosy. I got right. told off for having a cigarette by Cherie Blair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been back since. Um, there was a hand that went I'll tell you what I'll take two because you were very eager so I'll take the gentleman there and we'll do them together so I'll take the fellow behind you and then I'll take you well, yes MSPs be forced to accept an excessive pay rise like their colleagues down south well MSPs be forced to accept an excessive pay rise like their colleagues down south and the gentleman here well mine was about uh, you wouldn't take your mother's advice about Coca-Cola mm. you can take her advice about politics you won't take your mum's advice on Coca-Cola. Will you take your mum's advice on politics? Well, I think m my mum's um, not hugely political. My family never has been. Um, they do try and offer me advice. I think one of the more bowlishly scary things was when I'd invited my parents to an event at number 10 and they met the Prime Minister and my dad started telling him what he was doing wrong and how he could improve things. Um, I did slightly wish that, that, you know, but fair play to him, you know, he was taking his opportunity, well done dad. Uh, but but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, I hope that they're, they're proud of me. I hope that, um, I know when I first got elected and I got kicked around a bit because I was new to the post that I knew, knew it upset them. I had to stop my dad from writing strongly worded letters to the newspapers by telling him that, you know, I might be his little girl, but that wouldn't help me. Uh, you know, they, they, I was a big girl's, I'm in a big girl's world now and I've got to wear my big girl pants and I'll, I'll cope. But, um, just not in the showers in Kosovo. But just not in the showers in Kosovo. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my parents, um, I hope... Um, are proud of, of what I'm trying to do. They certainly worked very hard and have become more political since I've been involved in politics and helped. Uh, you know, I had them manning a polling station in the Leaven uh, on polling day for the referendum, which is the first time they've ever done that. So we, we were putting all shoulders to the wheel and they were they were there for the no side and the no campaign. So yeah, I was very proud of them too. Uh, and in terms of the pay rise, no, we're not getting the pay rise. We decoupled ourselves from Westminster. So um, we've had our pay frozen which is absolutely right and proper for a few years because of uh, pay in the public sector being frozen and I think I think we're taking a 1% rise next year but I'd have to check but we had a big decision all of the political parties this is one of the occasions where I was talking about earlier where all of the leaders kind of get together behind closed doors and we're chatting with the presiding officer and we said we we can't do this at a time when we're asking nurses and people that work in the DWP and ambulance people to only take a 1% rise. We, we can't take 10, 11%, so we'll take 1% too. So that's what we did. Can you refuse it? Uh, we can refuse it because our payments are... Uh, we had coupled ourselves, I think, to Westminster. So I think we were on 87.5% of an MP salary. And every time an MP salary went up, ours would go up sort of a similar amount and what we chose to do was we chose to decouple ourselves from an MP salary and uh, set our own rates which we're, we're able to do. Uh, we don't have IPSA which is the new body that was brought in after the expenses scandal down south that is um, that sets MPs pay for them um, and 
people down south, so MPs and stuff, aren't able to not receive their pay rise, it will go in their bank accounts. Now, what they choose to do with it is up to them. If they want to give it to charity, that's entirely up to them. But they can't refuse it, if you know what I mean. Whereas, whereas we could, and we've set our own salary level and we're not taking it. There you go. That was a very satisfying end. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, I thank you firstly for all of you for coming. It's, uh, I think it's really important that politics is done in a, in a sort of more friendly and light-hearted way. So I'm glad that you've come and enjoyed it. But uh, what a wonderful guest we've had this evening. Whether you uh, agree or disagree, yes or no, Labour, Tory, SMB or whatever, I'm sure you'll all agree uh, that Ruth has been magnificent. So please give it up for Ruth Davidson. <laughs> Ruth Davidson there recorded live at the Edinburgh Festival. What a legend. Um, someone I'm absolutely certain we will hear more from uh, in the uh, coming years. And someone whose profile, really, for the sake of the Conservative Party, I think, has to rise. And you just get the sense of someone who really should be known, not just in Scotland, but throughout the wider United Kingdom. And I'm sure that'll be the case. And she's only 30-odd. I'm not sure if she's about the same age as me, or maybe even younger. Only if, if, if older, not by much. And you think, crikey. You know, she's really done something with her life. So when, when I mean, people say you feel old and the police uh, start getting young. I mean, when politicians start looking young, it must be, uh, well, gives us all a kick at the backside, doesn't it? What a legend, Ruth Davidson. The next show, which will be out very soon, is with Suzanne Evans from UKIP. And the live shows are, uh, for this year, sold out. October with uh, Tommy Shepherd, November um, with a guest to be announced. And next year's shows are currently on sale. And those guests... Um, should be announced soon. So, thanks again for downloading it. Um, follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford. I'm still on tour around the place. You can find um, tickets at mattford.com slash live. See you soon. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more.